Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. In our popular imagination, slavery in the United States came to an end with the surrender of the Confederacy and the passage of the 13th Amendment. But the truth is that various forms of human bondage and forced labor continued across the United States and its territories long after the conclusion of the Civil War. Our guest today is Christina Snyder, who is the McCabe Greer Professor of History at Penn State University. This year, as a fellow at the National Humanities Center, Christine is working on a new book exploring how and why bondage persisted in the United States, even after chattel slavery was officially abolished. Welcome, Christina. Thanks. Thanks, Robert. So, why is this so little known that the Civil War was not the end of American slavery? And how and why has the popular historical narrative erased these various stories that you're unpacking for us? I think that um, a lot of times the story that we tell about American history is celebratory, and it's often linear as well in the sense that we believe that it gets better and better over time. And freedom has often been at the center of that narrative, the expansion of freedom over time. And for a long time, scholars, really until the 1970s, only focused on studying slavery in the antebellum South. Um, There were very few works on slavery in other kinds of contexts. But since that time, and I would say especially over the last 10 years, there's been a lot of scholarship that really troubles the notion that slavery is quarantined in time and space. So that is that we've discovered that slavery existed on Ivy League campuses and in St. Louis trading houses and in Montreal and in California. And so now we're developing this picture as historians working on the cutting edge that um, slavery was actually uh, continental, that it existed um, for a long period of time, really since the earliest days of colonialism, since Christopher Columbus's time, and that it even persisted past the Civil War. So this new book that I'm writing is, is really an effort to make sense of some of the changes that have happened in that historiography, in the work that scholars have done, and bring together these different stories of bondage to really trouble freedom as the central category in American history and show all the ways in which freedom has not been extended to certain groups of people. Why has there been such a resistance to exploding that perception that the U.S. has been the self-proclaimed liberator for uh, since the Civil War? Well, it is part of um, the kind of self-fashioning of the American Republic itself. So, you know, after the Union was victorious in the Civil War, it took up this identity as a liberator and also civilizer, which politicians and bureaucrats saw as being closely intertwined with, with liberty. We have to remember that in the period after the Civil War, the U.S. starts to expand into the West and even overseas. And the United States wanted to um, develop an image of itself um, as a positive force for good, even as it was creating an empire and dispossessing indigenous people, 
um, and the residents of former colonies like Spain, for example. What's the attachment of colonialism to this whole enterprise, uh, particularly in terms of the confinement of people of color throughout America? Um, Slavery and colonialism, I argue, are intertwined, and they have been since the early days of the European invasion. The United States, in conversation with other colonizers, has drawn on a legal doctrine that's known as the doctrine of discovery. And this is a kind of compact among European people and European-descended people that they alone have the authority um, over land and other people. And so this is an idea that's really been at play as the U.S. has adopted its identity initially from Great Britain and then extended it into new kinds of places. And, you know, while Americans like to think that the West, for example, was a, quote, virgin wilderness, really every inch of North America was occupied by indigenous people. The U.S. intrusion into those places you know, effectively colonized them, pushed out indigenous people uh, who were often forced into um, servitude itself, into slavery, which is an unrecognized story, or onto, you know, other types of confinement like reservations, for example. I wanted to now delve into some of the particulars of this project. You know, we're all familiar with the Oliver Twist story, but I'm fascinated by the story that you're telling about orphan bonding. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. I explore different kinds of bondage in this book, and one of them is orphan binding. So there are different kinds of ideas that played into American unfreedom. You know, there's the idea of chattel slavery. um, There's the idea of convict labor. But there's also this idea that children of the poor or who are often thought to be orphans, they may be, they may not be, could be bound out to private citizens with no regard for their parents' consent, um, for example. And this is a fate that in particular became settled on indigenous children. So one of my chapters explores um, bound children in early Utah. So when LDS settlers came into Utah in the 1840s, 1850s, they actually came to a place where Spanish slavery had already ensnared Native people, and they tapped into that slave trade. They saw it as a way to redeem Native children into civilization, as they put it. So, you know, even though they they had this idea that they themselves were liberators and were ameliorating the conditions of these children, they were perpetuating that kind of slave trade. You know, the United States at that time did have kind of ambiguous relationship with Mormons. You know, there's a lot of antagonism uh, toward Mormons in the territorial days. Um, And so there were some officials who brought concerns to the federal government about what was happening in the West. But ultimately, the federal government believed that binding Native children was in line with its federal Indian policy. Um, which at that time was called the assimilation policy. Even though this seems like a particular kind of case, this issue of, of binding Native children was relatively widespread in the West and, again, played into colonial ideas about assimilation. So was there anything formalized about binding, or are there cases of actual abduction The ways in which Native children came to be bound in the West, there are really two main ways. 
The first is through capture and warfare. So these are really prisoners of war. Oftentimes men um, and even women were killed in war, but these children were sometimes survivors of massacres, for example. So they would be abducted from these battle sites and taken into white homes. And, you know, typically there's really no attempt to search for other family members. The other way is through middlemen. So there were professional slave traders who trafficked in Native people in the West. And so sometimes these white households bought them from slave traffickers. Uh, in terms of other kind of formal legal procedures, uh, different territories had different laws. In Utah, for example, there was uh, actually a law that required uh, masters to come before county officials and formally bind uh, these Native children to a contract. And it's interesting that um, they wanted to pursue the idea of a contract because these were almost without exception children under 12 years old who could not read English, and yet they're you know signing an X on these contracts. Uh, some of these contracts do survive, and those are things that I've been able to find in my research in Utah. Although in some cases, you know, masters didn't follow through the normal legal channels and there were no repercussions. Mm -hmm. You also investigate sugar plantations in Hawaii, and that gives us a, uh, a look into indentured Asian labor practices. So can you talk a bit about those? Sure. So the Civil War, one of the things that it did was destroyed sugar plantations in Louisiana which had been major sites of enslavement in the Deep South. And part of what I show in the book is that even if bondage is destroyed in one place, there's an insatiable global demand for cheap goods that often drives the development of bondage in a new place. And so that's what we can see happening with the sugar economy uh, after the Civil War. So very quickly, that sugar economy is transferred to Hawaii, where American planters already lived. Some of them had come from the South. Others hired overseers who had worked on Louisiana plantations to develop sugar plantations. And so the sugar production um, increases in Hawaii, I think, fivefold during the war itself. So it's really this massive labor infrastructure is developed there almost overnight. And the way that planters achieve this is through two means. They bind some indigenous Hawaiians, but they rely largely on indentured Asian immigrants. So people from Japan and Korea and China and other Pacific islands as well. You know, this is a kind of story that skirts the line between um, contract labor and unfree labor because initially people are lured um, with the promise of this contract and yet when they arrive in Hawaii, oftentimes the planter will violate the contract in various ways. Or as was done in the South with sharecroppers, a worker will essentially be forced to buy goods uh, at the company store or pay rent or whatever such that he or she can never really escape this bondage. This is a kind of transnational and Pacific world story where I show the, the connections and how global markets can really realign labor in different places. So the 13th Amendment explicitly protects convict labor, which perhaps 
we don't know, generally speaking. And you do a lot of work looking at uh, convict labor uh, during the age of industrialization in America, particularly focusing on Pennsylvania and Tennessee uh, in terms of the comparisons. So tell us a bit about those comparisons. I have a few chapters on convict labor because, I, you know, it is the most well-protected form of bondage in the U.S. today. And I think maybe to some readers this will be maybe the most familiar part of the story just because there has been more journalism and academic work on mass incarceration. And we're really seeking to understand the roots of that and the manifestations of it. And so comic labor itself is part of that story. Uh, what I wanted to do here was um, to show uh, a few different paths to convict labor. And, and the first is convict labor for corporations in the aftermath of the Civil War, and actually this begins even before the Civil War in some parts of the North, that uh, states would lease out convict laborers to corporations, to private citizens. The reason that I'm doing a comparison in one of my chapters is that essentially it functioned differently in different states. So most Northern and Midwestern states, convicts actually did labor within the penitentiary itself. So they made shoes or brooms um, or what have you within the actual penitentiary. So that was the case in Pennsylvania, for example. In many parts of the South, um, penitentiaries had actually burned during the Civil War. So I think Texas was maybe the only state that still had a penitentiary at the end of the Civil War. And rather than rebuild, um, what southern states did was to lease out all of their prisoners to corporations or private individuals. So what you have is them releasing, you know, both the labor and bodily custody of people. And so the what I'm looking at in Tennessee is actually the lease of convict laborers to coal companies. So that was kind of one of the most notoriously dangerous, often deadly form of labor. And, you know, a way in which we can see this really clear link between the industrialization of the South, which is built in part on convict laborers who at that time were over 90% African-American. So it is a form of bondage that is targeting the children and grandchildren of formerly enslaved people. And you also look at uh, the use of convict labor, but also indentured servitude, as it were, on college campuses and the uh, building of college campuses. And you look at University of Georgia, for example, where I believe you were an undergraduate, correct? Tell us a little bit about that. This is post-Civil War. We have essentially black bondage building college campuses. That's right. When I was an undergraduate at the University of Georgia, I had heard that convicts had helped build the football stadium there. And it was a fact that really stuck with me because it seemed incredibly odd. I had never heard of convict labor probably at that point, you know, I was 18 years old. So when I thought about doing this book, I went back at the university archives and looked in the records and it was it was there. So what I discovered, and this is kind of the other part of the convict labor story that I wanted to tell with this chapter, is that other than being leased to corporations, convicts were forced to work for states themselves. So after 1908, the state of Georgia ended its convict leasing program, which was, you know, notoriously corrupt and damaging. But it still believed that working convicts was 
the way to rehabilitate them. And there was also on the practical side a real desire to continue to extract labor from prisoners. And so in Georgia and um, in states actually across the country around that time, convicts were declared, quote, slaves of the state. And they were put to public works. And so usually we think about this in terms of the good roads movement, chain gangs laboring on roads. But in many states, they could work on any kind of state-owned project, uh, including universities. Beginning in the 19-teens, the state of Georgia allotted up to 50 prisoners at a time, and these are state felons, to work on the University of Georgia campus. This was something that university officials had really pushed for. They really relied on the labor of convicts to help expand the university during the Progressive Era. Um, And that was a time when the university had just admitted women, The ag school was also expanding, and one of the uh, administrators, and particularly the athletics director, Stedman Stanford, saw the construction of a new football stadium as a way to excite alumni and bring donors to the campus. Um, So you can also see the interplay of collegiate sports and how that played into relying on convict labor and relying on donors, you know, to make modern universities work. And how were these convicts housed when they were working on the University of Georgia campus? They were housed in um, moving railroad cars. There were convict cages that were actually pulled by mules. These are pretty small cages, you know, kind of nine by nine, about 12 feet long, up to 20 feet long, and they would house about 18 prisoners. So they had, you know, very small bunks, multiple levels, They were chained together in their bunks at night. The cage itself was secured with a lock. So, you know, it may seem strange to us today, but students saw this on campus. They commented about it in the student newspaper. They had debates about it um, in the literary society. It was a normal part of life in the progressive era South on the one hand. On the other hand, um, students were um, concerned about the ethics of uh, human rights, you know, on campus. And the football stadium itself was seen as, as a great marvel of modern construction and a source of great interest. So people actually came at all times of day to watch the construction. And it's also pretty well documented through a series of um, photographs that the university had commissioned while the construction was happening. Tell us a bit about why you were drawn to this project. I mean, this is your third book. You've done Native American history before, and but why this particular project? What about your passions made you interested in this, uh, this historical project? Well, as you said, my previous work has been about Native Americans, and my first book was about Native Americans and slavery. And after I wrote that book, I was invited to Um, some conferences, including a global uh, workshop on the history of slavery that took place at the University of Colorado. And so when I was there, I got to meet scholars from all over the world who are working on slavery in all different contexts, from the Indian Ocean to ancient Rome to Korea. And that really expanded my thinking about slavery and about the stories we tell in American history. Because if you look at the history of the Indian Ocean, for example, 
those scholars think of bondage more broadly, and they also take a really critical look at the history of empire and, and how empires try to use the rhetoric of abolition to achieve their own ends. Part of that got me thinking um, about writing a more expansive history of bondage in North America and including people of indigenous, black, and Asian descent to show how they all in various ways became entangled um, in these unfree forms of labor, forms that even persisted beyond the 13th Amendment and the end of the Civil War, and some of which even persist up until the present. So I thought that by writing this book from a scholarly perspective, I could bring different fields together. You know, sometimes we're kind of siloed off in our different temporal or thematic fields. But this project helped me see some of the connective tissue between these different stories and also illuminate the, the legacies that continue to shape our present. So, I mean, the impact of this book for historical scholarship is, I think, clear. So talk to us a little bit about how that impact translates to a fuller understanding in the general public for what you're writing about. I think the the kind of central point that I want to get across is that freedom is still a work in progress. We can't automatically have a sense that history is progressive in the sense that it's getting better all the time and that things will, will naturally continue to improve, you know, that Americans will continue to accumulate freedom over time and that freedom will be extended to different groups of people over time. What this shows is that freedom is really not the central category in American history, that in reality there are many groups who have been left out um, of this story of freedom, especially people of color and indigenous people. Uh, and even if they have legally achieved freedom, their rights in many other ways have been circumscribed. That is their right to live, to work, to accumulate property, you know, some of the really basic rights that we think about as Americans. So I hope that if someone picks up this book, that they will take a more critical look at their own habits as a consumer, for example. There's still unfree labor that makes many of the products that we still use today. We also take advantage of infrastructure that is built by enslaved uh, or otherwise unfree laborers. So some of the, you know, the stadium, for example, or the roads that we travel on or, you know, the government buildings that we work in. I hope that it will also make us more thoughtful about racial injustice and economic equality moving forward. Thank you, Christina Snyder. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.